Aristotle had a much more holistic, WH, holistic view of, um, of the good life, where he incorporated um, um, uh, generosity, giving, kindness. You know, he spent a lot of time talking about politics and how we are relative to other people um, as important elements of happiness. And this is what, this is the kind of scholarship we need today. And again, scholarship not as an end in itself, scholarship as a means towards an end, which is another Aristotelian um, uh, focus. What is the, you know, how do you actually use this for the purpose of bettering your life? This is, you know, what the Greeks in general, not just Aristotle, were, were focused on the good life and unashamedly so. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 131. And this episode is with Tal Ben-Shahar. And Tal did his undergraduate and graduate work at Harvard, where he later lectured on positive psychology and taught the most popular course in the, the university's history. And he's now a speaker and writer who focuses largely on happiness and included in that positive psychology. So Tal and I talk about the interdisciplinary field of happiness studies, which he's been developing for the better part of half a decade, and which draws on such disparate areas of academia as neuroscience and history and literature and anthropology to pull together a cohesive understanding of what happiness is. We start off by discussing Aristotle, who Tall thinks of as the father of happiness. And then after we get into Tall's own framework for the factors involved in happiness, we move on to how various disciplines like the ones I've just mentioned, so neuroscience, anthropology, philosophy, can teach us about happiness in different ways. And at the end of the episode, Tall gives some practical advice for improving the quality of one's life. There are links in the description to Tal's website and his Twitter. And I always have to mention that comments, likes, subscribes, follows, all of those things are endlessly appreciated. And now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Tal. I saw that you, as we were we were just uh, talking about you did your undergraduate work in philosophy and psychology, and what I'm wondering right at the outset is at that point were you already fascinated with positive psychology on the one hand, and then on the other the ancient traditions of philosophy or Eastern traditions even of philosophy concerned with happiness. And I suppose what I'm asking just to make it more clear is just when it was first that happiness became the focus of your research and career and second like the synthesis of a variety of approaches to happiness yes yeah, so um you know p positive psychology as as a field uh, only came about in 1998 so uh this was uh after i'd already graduated as a um as an undergraduate but um I was interested in, in philosophy and psychology from um, a relatively young age simply because, you know, I thought this is where I could find answers. I didn't really know where to look for the answers, but I thought, okay, you know, philosophy, they ask the big questions, psychology, it's about the psyche. Um, I think I'll go for both um, so that I can uh, get some answer to my, uh, to my plea, really. Um, which is, you know, how can I become happier? Because I wasn't happy growing up. You know, I wasn't happy as a, as an undergraduate student. I started off as a computer science major. Uh, and it was only later that I turned to philosophy and psychology. So I really, really was, uh, was desperate. And, and I wanted to look anywhere, everywhere where I thought maybe I could find, uh, the, the answers. And, you know, Fortunately, I, I did find at least some of the answers in these two uh, fields. Hmm. So, as you just said, you were interested in answers, but was it was it just to the big questions, or was it just to questions about happiness already then that you were quite focused on because of your disappointing undergraduate career? Yeah, well, it was um, 
you know, there were big questions for me. The big question for me was, why am I miserable? <laughs> and, you know, and uh, the big uh, another big question was not, you know, not just for me, for everyone, you know, why are we here? Um, you know, what, what, what's the purpose uh, of it all? Because I did have some, um, you know, very nihilistic musings, uh, as again, many people uh, do. So it was these questions and, um, and you know, uh, Socrates uh, encouraged me because he says, you know, I know that I don't know. I, you know, I, I certainly knew that I didn't know. And I thought, you know, he's the father of Western philosophy. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll look at what he has to say. Um, and then I discovered Aristotle. And for me, that was uh, a game changer. You know, even today when I teach happiness, I, I teach so, um, Aristotle as the father of the field of happiness studies. And, and I remember when I first read Nicomachean Ethics, um, I thought, wow, you know, someone so over, you know, 2,500 years ago had these thoughts and I, I, I could actually feel like I was walking, uh, you know, beside him in his, uh, you know, in his, uh, in his school, in his lyceum. And I thought, he's, he's talking to me. And um, there was no turning back after Aristotle. Good. Well, I think maybe we should return to those two questions. Uh, why were you miserable and why are we here at the end of our conversation after we've uh, discussed some of the elements of happiness studies? But you said that you teach Aristotle as the father of happiness studies. And maybe a good place to start then is what is the difference between positive psychology, which is naturally a branch of psychology and this synthesis of other fields that is happiness studies. Right. So the, um, the difference between the two became very clear to me in um, 2015 when a question came to mind. So until that time, j just for context, I had been essentially doing positive psychology. You know, that's the course I taught. That is uh, what I wrote about. Um, I was um, part of that field from, you know, the very beginning is still as a, as a graduate student, 1998. So 1998, 2015, you know, basically 100% positive psychology. And then 2015, a question came to mind. And the question was, how is it that there is a field of study for psychology, for philosophy, for history, for medicine, biology, geography, you name it, but there's no field of study for uh, happiness. Yeah, it's true that there is a positive psychology, but that's just the psychology of happiness. What about what philosophers like Aristotle or Lao Tzu had to say about happiness? What about what economists had to say about happiness or neuroscientists or literature. Um, you know, Chinua Kebe has a lot to say about happiness. Uh, Shakespeare has a lot to say about happiness. What about what film has to say about happiness? You know, one of my favorite courses as an undergrad was with the philosopher Stanley Cavell, who taught a course, uh, it was a core class, but then over the pursuits of happiness, where every week we would watch a movie. Uh, you know, His Girl Friday, uh, Lady Eve, North by Northwest, great movies and talk about ha happiness. But why wasn't there a field of study that included f uh, movies or that included um, um, history? We can learn a lot from history, about, uh, from history about happiness. So I decided um, at that time, 2015, to help create a field of study around happiness, which was really an interdisciplinary field of study that will incorporate, of course, positive psychology. It will be an important element, part of it, but just one part. Um, and uh, that's what I've been doing. You know, this is eight years now. I, I launched the Happiness Studies Academy, which um, uh, started uh, by offering a certificate program, a year-long certificate program uh, in happiness studies, once again, incorporating all these disciplines and asking what can they teach us about the good life. Um, and then uh, just less than a year ago, um, we uh, launched the world's first master's degree in happiness studies. Because my, my goal is that uh, 
happiness studies will become a legitimate field, just like psychology is, or philosophy is, or or, or history is, where uh, universities will have departments that teach happiness studies at at every level, undergrad, graduate, uh, and graduate level. Hmm. Okay, so you said that you were doing positive psychology until 2015, which is when happiness studies began. But so that was when the study, the field of study started for you. Maybe we should begin with how the field itself began, which, as you put it, came with Aristotle. So what were his specific contributions that made you think of him as the father of it all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so many of the questions that 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 we face today. I mean, even you know, I had a so once a week we meet for the certificate program. We meet uh, for a live webinar. Even today, I had a question about this. He made a very clear distinction between uh, pleasure and happiness. You know, so he defined what we call happiness today, which is you know maybe more flourishing. He talks about eudaimonia, and um, you know, eudaimonia is not pleasure. And he explicitly makes the distinction between pleasure and 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 flourishing. So many people today, when they when they talk about happiness, talk about it in the context of a, of a mood. Uh, oh, I was so happy uh, having this ice cream. I was so happy being on the beach. You know that that's not happiness as 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 far as uh, I'm concerned. And again, you know, each to his or her own in terms of definitions. But um, that's pleasure. You know, that, that's fun. Happiness is much deeper than that. And that is what Aristotle focused on. And consequently, because of that definition, he also understands that happiness, the antecedents of happiness, as, uh, as very different than what, you know, I guess conventional wisdom would have us believe. You know, he talks about it as, uh, you know, the, the antecedents being relationships, for example, friendship. And we know today, and and you know, may have co- you may have come across um, the the Harvard study on uh, on uh, on happiness, where they followed people for seventy five years, by now eighty five years, and they found that the most important element of a happy life and of a healthy life, connection between mind and body, happy and healthy life, relationships, um, whether it's uh, romantic relationships or work relationships, or it can be friendship. It actually doesn't matter what kind of relationships, as long as there are deep, supportive relationships. Well, Aristotle talked about it 2,500 plus years ago. He talked about the importance of contemplation. Now, when, when, when I talk about happiness, one of the um, elements that I talk about is intellectual well-being which is almost completely absent from discussion of happiness. Why? Because happiness is considered an emotion. Yeah, it's also an emotion, but that's, again, just part of it. So Aristotle had a much more holistic, WH, holistic view of, um, of the good life, where he incorporated um, um, uh, generosity, giving, kindness. You know, he spent a lot of time talking about politics and how we are relative to other people. Um as important elements of happiness. And this is what, this is the kind of scholarship we need today. And again, scholarship not as an end in itself. Scholarship as a means towards an end, which is another Aristotelian um, uh, focus. What is the, you know, how do you actually use this for the purpose of bettering your life? This is, you know, what the Greeks in general, not just Aristotle, were, were focused on the good life. And unashamedly so. Well, I I do some philosophy myself, and I'm certainly of the opinion that philosophy is at its best when it's working in conjunction with other fields. So it's very nice to, one, hear that Aristotle's beliefs about the antecedents of happiness are confirmed 2,000 plus years later by work done at Harvard. And also, I'm very happy to hear about this, the synthesis that is happiness studies. So philosophy is situated in this constellation of other disciplines that are all working together holistically, WH. And I'd like to get back to this Harvard study on happiness. But I think that 
we should start with the the very beginning uh, in a, in a different sense, just terminologically rather than historically. So our understanding of happiness has changed a lot since Aristotle, because as you mentioned, it's informed by whole bodies of neuroscience, history, literature, psychology, etc. That Aristotle and those who followed him didn't have. So when I say that, I think we ought to start at the beginning. What I have in mind is a very crucial question, and that's what is happiness? And it seems like one of those things that we all know the answer to, but that's very difficult to put into words. Yet I imagine there's a lot of disagreement over cases nonetheless. So doing heroin can make you happy in one sense, but make you quite miserable in another. So where I want to start with how it is that you go about disambiguating the word happiness that's at the, the center of happiness studies. Yeah, of course, you know, that that's a very important question. And needless to say, this is, you know, what the first class is uh, about, whether, whether it's a master's degree or, um, or a certificate or a lecture. Um, so what is happiness? You know, when we talk about definition, um, of course, they are um, um, to some extent in the eye of the beholder. You know, how do you define a certain uh, concept? So the re so the definition that I'm going to uh, share, you know, I I didn't receive it on a, any mountaintop, and you know I didn't fast for forty days, and and then it was uh, revealed to me. Um, this is a definition that relies on the works of Aristotle and Lao Tzu and Helen Keller and Marty Seligman and Sonia Lubomirsky and um, and Chinua Kebet. And uh, and it it it, it read and and um, you know African mythology and Greek mythology. So it really is an attempt, imperfect, but an attempt to integrate and synthesize the um, the great works and the great works, uh, whether you know the, the great books, the great um, the great art from different cultures. So looking for universal definition as much as possible, synthesized through my education, which is a very particular education, uh, or, you know, a group of us that, that worked on it. So having said all that, um, here is a definition of, of happiness that, that we, the Happiness Studies Academy, at least work with. Um, happiness comprises five elements. The five elements of happiness are as follows. The first one is spiritual well-being. Spiritual well-being can, of course, uh, um, be experienced and enjoyed uh, in, a, in a place of worship through religion. Um, however, spiritual well-being is first and foremost about a sense of meaning and purpose in life and um, a sense of presence and mindfulness. So we experience spiritual well-being when we're present in the moment and or when we experience a sense of meaning and purpose. Spiritual well-being. Then there is physical well-being. Physical well-being is about uh, exercise, for instance. It's about nutrition. It's about rest and recovery. These are all ways to increase our overall happiness, but specifically they fall under physical well-being. For instance, we know that regular exercise uh, has the same effect on our psychological well-being. I'm not even talking about physical well-being, but on our psychological well-being, same effect as our, mo as our most powerful psychiatric medication. In fact, working in the same way, releasing norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, the feel-good chemicals in the brain. Um, we know how important nutrition is, not just for physical well-being, also for psychological well-being. Meaning, you know, how much processed versus natural food do we eat? Do we, you know, get our vegetables, our vitamins that affects our mind just as it does our bodies? Um, then there is the third element. So we have spiritual well-being, physical well-being. The third element is intellectual well-being. And that's about uh, reflection, contemplation. Uh, those research showing, for instance, that people who are curious, who ask questions, who are learners, are not just happier, which they are. They're not just more successful. They are that too. They also live longer. So, you know, curiosity may kill the cat. <laughs> it does the opposite to humans. Uh, so that's intellectual well-being. And, and by the way, it doesn't have to be, you know, learning text. 
It can be, you know, studying art. It can be being very attentive to and studying and contemplating the nature of nature. Um, but 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 um, deep learning, curiosity are important elements of intellectual well-being. Then there is relational well-being. Relational well-being, as I mentioned earlier, number one predictor of happiness, quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. And um, that's, um, that's about kindness and generosity. You know, we know that when we help others, we're helping ourselves. That, um, you know, there's a lot of talk in, uh, in, 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 in ethics about, you know, egoism versus altruism, about selfishness versus selflessness. And uh, I don't buy that schism, that distinction. You know, I'm, I've, I subscribe to selffulness, which is about helping self and others. Because when we help others, we're contributing to our own well-being. And there's a lot of research showing that when I increase my own well-being, I actually become more generous and kinder. So it potentially is a self-reinforcing loop, selffulness, generosity. Um, so that's all under, inter- uh, under relational well-being. And the final element of happiness is emotional well-being. And that's about learning to deal with painful emotions, which are part and parcel of every life. And how you deal with it? Well, you can deal with it by um, um, through catharsis, which is something that Aristotle talked about in, uh, in his poetics. Or you can, um, you can experience it by, uh, through writing a, a journal or therapy. Um, you deal with painful emotions. And, and another element of emotional well-being, of course, is cultivating pleasurable emotions, like appreciation, like joy, like, uh, like love. So you have these five elements, and they make up the acronym SPIRE. SPIRE, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional well-being. So I wish I had a one-sentence definition of happiness. I do. You know, happiness is whole person well-being. But that's not... And by the way, it's a, it's a definition that I um, um, took from the work of Helen Keller, who says, to me, the only definition of happiness is happiness as wholeness. Again, WH. Happiness as wholeness. Um, so my definition is happiness is whole person well-being but then if i break it down to its elements which is very important um whole being whole person well-being is spiritual physical intellectual relational and emotional well-being hmm. and then i am sure that philo- philosophy history and literature just to take three of the fields within happiness studies will quite easily confirm that we can draw these five distinctions between these five components of happiness. But do you also find, just to take for one example, since it's the field that you're most familiar with, positive psychology, that you can look at the research into positive psychology and parse findings about these five distinct components to happiness? Yeah. Yes, and. So, yes, I can. And what psychology can help us do is also um, explain to us why it's important to break down happiness into its its components. So, let me treat each one of these, uh, the yes and then the and. Um, so, you know, psych- psychologists, based on the work of uh, uh, Aristotle primarily, and make the distinction between uh, eudaimonic and hedonic happiness. So eudaimonic would be more about a sense of meaning and purpose. Uh, hedonic would be more about uh, the experience of pleasure. And um, there are two distinct pursuits and experiences. And two that are very important for happiness. And let me give you an, an, an extreme example. So, you know, the, the father of logotherapy um, is um, Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl, in his amazing book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, talks about his experience in a concentration camp in Auschwitz. And uh, he says that he was more likely, and or 
the uh, inmates were more likely to survive if they found a sense of meaning and purpose in their life, a, a reason, something to live for. And it could be, you know, I want to see my, my, you know, my husband, wife, when I, when I, when I come out or family, or I want to write a certain book and, or tell the world about it or whatever. But if they had a, 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 a what to live for, they were more likely to overcome the hardship. So he talks about the importance of, uh, of, of meaning. And that aligns with um, eudaimonia. But to suggest that people in Auschwitz or a concentration camp or people you know, living through war, even today, now, as we speak, to suggest that they're happy would be a stretch. Uh, would be, you know, insensitive to put it mildly. So it's not in enough, just enough to have a purpose, a sense of meaning. You also need pleasure. And here we go to another giant of psychology, and that is Freud. You know, who talks about the pleasure principle, who talks about how important that is, how central it is, uh, of, how central of a pursuit it is, which it is. Now, at the same time, without a sense of meaning and purpose, just, you know, experiencing pleasure, whether it's, you know, sex, drugs, or rock and roll, that's not enough for a happy life. And we know that because there are all too many examples of uh, people who burn out um, on the uh, hedonic treadmill. So just that is not enough. What you need, perhaps, is some sort of a combination you know, I would argue you'd need other things as well. But at the very least, what Freud prescribed and what Frankl prescribed, the hedonic and the eudaimonic. And psychology, the research shows how important they are. Um, neuroscience research related to positive psychology also shows that we experience them in, you know, different parts of the brain. You know, we have the emotional brain, we have the, uh, you know, the rational or thinking brain, so to speak. And again, it's all interconnected, of course, but we can make that distinction. Um, so that's, um, that, that's what we can learn from and incorporate from the field of, of psychology. And by the way, you know, I've always been for uh, an interdisciplinary approach. In, in a sense, you know, I've been for going back to what philosophy was about, because, you know, Aristotle was a philosopher. But today, which where you, would you put him? Which department? Because, you know, he wrote a book about poetics. So would you put him in a literature department? Um, he, uh, you know, he wrote about uh, happiness. So would you put him in a psych department? He, of course, was a philosopher. So you probably put him in a philosophy department. But, you know, he also studied uh, animals. So maybe a biologist. No, he was a philosopher. It, because then, at that time, it was an interdisciplinary uh, field. He was also a mathematician. You know, that's the foundation that he got when he studied with, with his teacher, you know, that Plato. So, um, so, so it was really interdisciplinary. And, and in a sense, you know, I'm talking about happiness studies today. You know, I, I, I didn't make this connection before, but, you know, maybe... It's it's my way of returning to um, to Plato and Aristotle, to their um, to their schools. Maybe I should should have called my school uh, Lacing as opposed to Happiness Studies Academy. But yeah, yeah, you could be in much worse uh, company than Plato and Aristotle. But this is all great, and I'd like to now move into the contributions that some of these fields make to the whole. And despite this unifying definition of happiness that you capture with the SPIRE acronym, are there still nonetheless crucial dimensions in which various of the fields that contribute to happiness conceive of their subject differently? So for instance, I imagine that an animal psychologist researching happiness might take a drastically different approach from a neuroscientist attempting to identify the neural correlate of the conscious experience of happiness. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. So uh, let, let me give a few examples. Um, 
Let me start with um, film. You know, I'm a, you know, I love movies and um, f- for various reasons. First of all, you know, because I enjoy them. Second, because uh, I learn from them. Third, because they potentially have a real impact. You know, when um, there is a, there's been an attempt for many years in the field, uh, you know, in physics to find this uh, one formula, the unifying theory of everything. And, um, you know, Einstein was uh, w- was looking for it. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm assuming that Oppenheimer uh, was, uh, was looking for it. I know that Max Planck and Marie Curie were looking for it. No, you know, no one really found it. And, you know, maybe it's above our pay grade as human beings and, and we'll never find it. But there has been an attempt and there, there are attempts. Unsuccessful. In psychology, there is a unifying theory. And the unifying theory of psychology and also by extension of happiness studies is stories. If you think about it, wherever you look in, um, in psychology, you find stories. What is therapy about? Therapy is about me, you know, sit, sitting in, a, in, in, in an office and basically telling my story. And I feel so much better afterwards as a result. There's a lot of research on journaling for the same reason. Helps us a great deal overcome hardships, deal with anxiety, um, solve problems. Personal, interpersonal problems. Why? Because we tell a story by journaling, writing about it. Think about uh, cognitive psychology. Uh, a, a large part of the, the field of cognitive psychology deals with memory. What do we remember well or better? Not facts, not statistics. We remember stories. Our brains are wired towards stories. That's what we absorb, assimilate, connect to. Um, think about leadership, organizational psychology. The great leaders, what's unique about them? They're storytellers. Um, you know, think about the most influential books throughout history. You know, certainly in the West, it's the Bible. And, um, you know, whether you think it was the word of God or written by people, it's an extremely influential book. What is the Bible? It's a collection of stories. Um, so in terms of uh, impact, um, so everywhere you look in psychology, you see stories, narrative at, at the center. Now, this is the power of film. A film tells you a story and what it does and where I find, you know, when I teach happiness, where it contributes so much is I can take a, um, a very complicated theory or even a number of theories. I can take the five spire elements and demonstrate it all through a movie um, or movies. So when you know when I um, you, when I would show a movie like you know Adam's Rib, which is a 1940s uh, movie with uh, um, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, you know their relationship is a microcosm for all relationships. Not only that, I can, so I can talk about the R of Spire. I can very much talk about the E of Spire because they, both of them, experience the full range of human emotions from, you know, joy and love and ecstasy to anger and hatred. And I do that through one move, you know, an hour and a half. And I can have these, these conversations. Um, you know, they, I can certainly talk about intellectual well-being because Adam's rib, I mean, just look at the name. It's taken from, you know, Adam and Eve. They fight with each other. And as a result of them fighting with each other, being a help meet to each other, they grow intellectually. They learn about themselves, about the case, about the world. Um, so you can learn so much from, from stories and movies. Our stories in a very short period of time. You have uh, you, you you can um, delve into real depth, consciously and subconsciously. You know that's why you know when when, when people say you know I ask them so did you um, did you watch um, 
whatever, Spartacus, one of my favorite movies. And they said, yeah, you know, I, I, I saw it. Do you, you want to watch it again together? And I said, no, I've already, I've already seen it. You know, the depth you can go in, you know, it's, it's like a piece of music, good music. Do you listen to it once? No, you listen to it over and over again. It's the same with movies because you can go deeper and deeper intellectually and through that explore the spire element. So that's the unique thing about movies, stories. Um, the unique thing, of course, about neuroscience is that we're getting, a, again, we, we're getting a, um, and we have an audience with something that Aristotle didn't have. We're looking into a person's brain. You know, today we know what a happy brain looks like. We know what a depressed brain, a compassionate brain looks like. Now, what we are seeing today is nothing. You know, we're, we're beginners. Is nothing compared to what we're going to see, I suspect, even five years from now, let alone 10 years from now. The insights that we could have through that about the behavior of particular neurons and, as far as I'm concerned, more importantly, what we can do to affect those neurons we're going to be able to be much more precise about our prescriptions in terms of what will contribute to your happiness, what will contribute to this element or that element of, of happiness. So that's neuroscience breaking down our, our understanding. And animal psychology is also important because, yes, we are also, you know, again, Aristotle, we are rational animals. So yeah, we're rational, but and we also have the you know the uh, the amygdala, the limbic system, or the reptile brain, the mam mammalian brain. That's also part of who we are. So we better understand that too. That's why we need you know the interdisciplinary approach to learn from the you know the movies which only humans uh, can make, and to learn from that one cell, you know the the neuron, and to learn from you know those animals. And, and on and on. There are some disciplines within happiness studies whose impacts on our understanding of happiness have me particularly curious. And one of those is anthropology, which I'm sure has made many contributions. But to, to start off, what do we know about happiness in different nations and cultures across the world? And what does this tell us about the nature of happiness as common to all of us yeah so important robinson because um when we think about happiness we need to think about it uh at three particular levels um the first level would be the universal level and that is what is um identical to all pl people all places all times all people all places all times needed a sense of meaning and purpose. You know, that's why, um, you know, we see uh, um, the, the search for, you know, whether it's a, a, a God or a reason uh, for being or the, um, you know, the, the, the prime mover or, you know, you call it whatever you want. We see it from uh, time immemorial in the art and in the literature and in the philosophy um, that, we, that we encounter. Um, every place, everywhere, uh, every time needed to move, to exercise. You know, the, the, the movie uh, WALL-E, um, which, which is a very important movie, shows us what will happen if we don't move. You know, the, the dystopia of all of us becoming, you know, blobs. Um, you know, we need to move and we always needed to move. And even in the post-remote control world or order everything online, we still need to move. Maybe we don't need to hunt and gather, but movement is necessary. So these are some of the universals. And again, the spire elements are universal. But then there is also the cultural. And there are real cultural differences. And in terms of uh, whether we find our meaning from individual pursuits or more collective pursuits, what our relationships are about, are they more, you know, are we more cognizant of, uh, respectful of hierarchies or are we more, you know, um, oriented towards, you know, equality and, 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 you know, a flat organizational community? 
these are real cultural differences and you need to take them into consideration when you're prescribing for yourself or for others from a particular culture. But that's not enough to understand how to prescribe happiness or how to fully understand our needs as it relates to the good life. The third element, in addition to universal and the cultural, is the personal. Because the personal is important too. And there are individual differences. So two people raising the same culture, sometimes even in the same home. You know, my wife and I often talk about this. We have three kids, three teenagers, and we often look at them and at their behaviors and we say, isn't it amazing? The three of them, same production line, so very different. So the individual differences matter because what I enjoy as physical exercise is different than what my, you know, sister does. What I um, find meaningful in my life is very different than what my brother finds meaningful, even though, again, same production line, same culture, certainly part of the same universe. So these are the three elements we need to look at. Now, for the universal and the cultural, we have research and some great research. And again, mounting by, by the day. Very important. For the third one, the personal, we don't need research. We need me-search. Which is why a very um, important part of all of the classes that I teach is journaling. Again, going back to Aristotle, reflection, contemplation. Look inside yourself. And it's by doing so that we build on the research, which is universal, the research, which is cultural. And we create as much as possible a, um, a model of what it is that would make us happy. Or if I'm working as a therapist or a coach or if I'm a parent or a teacher, what would make that person or those people happier? We need to look at those three levels, which is why, going back to your question, second level is the cultural, why anthropology is so important, the study of culture. You know, I'll give you uh, an example, a book. This is a popular book, but um, so uh, I think my uh, uh, anthropologist friends or, or colleagues would not be too happy with me. But, um, you know, look at the book called Lila by um, Robert M. Piercig. So Robert M. Piercig wrote uh, yeah. the book um, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. His second book, not as well known to my mind as good as the first one, is called Lila. And Lila is an anthropological study of Native Americans. And it's, it's fascinating because he talks about, one, one of the things that he talks about was the, um, the um, approach towards silence and we in the west feel very uncomfortable in uh, in silence with the absence of words and that's why we invented small talk <laughs> and uh, you know we always have something to say and you know fill the void um and um and and yet the native americans he would say when he lived with them at least according to the book um they would spend a long time just chilling you know, hanging, just saying nothing, you know, sitting, you know, around that bonfire and, you know, looking at each other, smiling, nodding, going back inside themselves, reflecting. And silence was, was okay. Now, they feel more comfortable in silence than we do in, you know, who were raised in a, you know, in a, in a traditional, say, you know, Western home or American or European home. And yet we can learn a lot from it because there is so much value to silence. Um, you know, Blaise Pascal says that, um, and I'm, I'm butchering this a little bit, but to paraphrase him, he says, most of the world's problems are a result of men, men's inability to sit quietly in his own room. Or in solitude in his in his in his room, you know we need to learn to be in in silence. We need to children need to learn how to be bored. 
um, not not turn to that screen, you know, on uh, automatically when 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 or, or we, you know, not just children, adults too. Uh, we don't know what it is to be in silence, to to look inside or to observe outside. So this is where we can learn from diff- uh, one example of many where we can learn from other cultures. Another example, and this, I ju- we just spoke about this uh, last week in our, in our uh, MA uh, class, uh, the concept of Ubuntu. I am because you are. It's an African, uh, but it's, it's, it's considered the foundation of African ethics. It's about saying, I see you. It's saying even more than that. It's saying, I am because of you. It's acknowledging the interdependence, interconnectedness among among people how important is that now in the west we we you know we talk about systems thinking how everything is interconnected well um you know uh, bohr talked about it in in physics peter sangi the organizational psychologist from mit talks about it uh, margaret wheatley talks about it well in 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 africa it's one of their pillars of their culture that you can learn about in their mythology in their philosophy and how important is this concept, especially in today's broken world, to introduce ideas like that? So through the study of anthropology, through the study of culture, we can learn so much. You know, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the, of, the, of, of the great works approach, great books from different cultures. Hmm. Okay, well, there, there's a lot there, uh, but for the moment... I'm going to single out one thing. So you mentioned this question a few minutes ago of the relationship between hierarchy and happiness. And I spoke a month or two ago with Nicholas Christakis of Yale, whose work I know with uh, James Fowler on social networks you've cited. And maybe we'll come back to that. But Nicholas Christakis also wrote a book about what makes or what the cultural universals are of successful cultures. So what makes a good society? And one of the things he identified is that not extreme hierarchy. So we don't want tyrants, but all good operating functional societies. And I don't want to put these words into his mouth because I'm sure that he would have a much better way of putting it than I do, but they all have, and this is his phrase, uh, mild hierarchy involved somewhere. And the question that I'm particularly curious about, and I'm not sure whether this ought to fall under anthropology or some other category, is how on your reading happiness is connected to the socioeconomic system under which a person lives. And I'm wondering here about capitalism, socialism, communism, and the like. And just to add a little bit more context to why I'm curious about this. One, I interviewed the Marxist economist Richard Wolff recently, who is very adamantly anti-capitalist and pro-socialist. And then The other reason is I'm currently reading a book on the history of genocide. And particularly in the 20th century, a tremendous proportion of these massive genocides, I I have in mind right now the communist genocides in uh, Russia, Cambodia, China, and then some of the anti-communist genocides that were a result of this, all stemmed from, I think, at root ideas about whether society ought to be organized around or in a communist structure, a socialist structure, a capitalist structure. And these sorts of arguments presumably ultimately hinge on beliefs about happiness within this sort of structure. Right. Yeah, look, there's obviously a lot to say here. Um, Some of it is, um, you know, will... um, reflect uh you know normative rather than positive uh values but there still is a lot of uh empirical evidence uh that 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 is worth uh mentioning um and the first one is if you look at the happiest countries in the world or if you look at the ranking and you look at the least happy countries in the world there are countries that are either 
communist countries or ex-communist countries. So the impact of communism is, has not just been for the time that it was there. It actually follows um, the generations uh, after. Now, as, as, as people are hearing this, as many people from philosophy departments um, uh, hear this uh, argument, they would say, but, you know, look at what capitalism it's, has done. And, you know, just look at the history of the 19th century. Um, and again, the capitalist would respond to that. Well, capitalism inherited rather than created poverty. And, you know, that's a, at least in part of a, a valid point. Um, now, let me get to the, um, to the normative in, in, in my perspective. I'm, I am a strong supporter of uh, conscious capitalism. And the conscious capitalist movement um, talks about a very simple fact. You know, capitalism has liberated millions and billions of people from poverty. Um, you know, capitalist countries are far less likely, far less likely to uh, enter into war than uh, non-capitalist countries. Um, uh, people are happier. Again, you gave the, the extreme example of genocide. Genocide will more likely take place when you fight human nature, which is what communism and socialism does, rather than when you work with human nature. And yes, as Adam Smith pointed out, uh, we all we have uh, this uh, you know innate desire to to succeed, to to grow, to prosper. And uh, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. There is something wrong with that when it comes at the expense of, when we put other people down. And that's where conscious capitalism comes in because conscious capitalism emphasizes um, a lot of the elements that we know are not just part of human nature, they're also the higher part of human nature. For example, a sense of meaning and purpose. You know, when you look at... Uh, <clears throat> Thieves. Thieves rarely want their children to be thieves. They want their children to go to, you know, college and, you know, get a respectable job. And respectable job is one where you, you know, you do well yourself and you contribute to, um, to others. You know, yes, we have the selfish gene, but then we also have the generous gene. That's why, again, I don't subscribe to that. You're either selfish or selfless. Yourself full. That is, this is what I I think that conscious capitalism is all about. It's bringing these two ideas together. Um, so, am I am I happy with uh, you know cutthroat, uh, uh, barren rob uh, robber baron uh, approach to um, you know the free market? No. Do I think that you know capitalism? has proven to be a lot more uh, effective than, than socialism? Absolutely, yes. And to my mind, conscious capitalism takes the best of both worlds. Looks at human nature, looks at our higher nature and focuses on that and accentuates that. Well, thanks a lot for humoring me because I think that was a rather esoteric question relative to the, the broader approach we've been taking to happiness studies in this conversation. But for the, the little time we have left, I'd like to shift gears slightly. And you mentioned earlier this Harvard, this very long Harvard study on happiness. And with that in mind, I'm wondering what some of the landmark studies in positive psychology have taught us with a particular eye to the, I guess, prescriptive dimensions that they have. So what might people do uh, actionably? I mean, there are lots of things that people can do to be happy. They can make millions and millions of dollars, but that's not something that just anybody can do. Uh, but but even, even that, you know, that, that, that would not be on my pre prescriptions, even if I could choose anything that I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Money is important to an extent, right, right, to a certain right. point. You know, if, if the difference between, you know, making, you know, 200,000, whatever, $200,000 a year and $200 million a year is actually not that significant in terms of, of, of happiness. So there are things that do more now. But it's still quite difficult. I mean, a lot of people aren't making yes. $200,000 even. So I'm just saying the things that are, what has, what have these studies told us? about 
happiness and the more achievable things that people can do. And, uh, yeah, and 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 yes, I, I absolutely. So, in terms of the more achievable things, I'm going to give you some things that I'm I'm sure you and others have have heard of. I don't, there isn't you know rocket science here. The the hard the difficulty is the implementation, not the understanding. So I can say a few words about implementation after, but but first of all, understanding what are the things. So so one of the things, and this is probably the most cited study in the field of psychology or set of studies, is about gratitude, appreciation. You know, it's no coincidence that in just about every religion and every uh, every philosophical system, gratitude gratitude is a virtue. Cicero called um, gratitude the mother of all virtues. And um, work, more recent work than Cicero's by uh, Emmons and McAuliffe um, shows that people who express gratitude on a regular basis are happier, healthier, their immune system actually strengthens, they are um, more generous, kinder towards others, and they're more successful. So, um, so, so gratitude is... is um, certainly a, a prescription. What does that look like? It could be every night before going to bed, write down three to five things that you're grateful for. Big things and little things. Could be, you know, your, your, uh, your, your mom uh, and, uh, you know, something that you had for lunch. Um, okay, so gratitude. Physical exercise. The research coming out on physical exercise, and I'm not exaggerating, by the, by the day, is literally and metaphorically mind-boggling the impact that exercise has you know i'm, I'm not a therapist no I'm a, i teach but if i were a therapist working one-on-one -on -one with people the first question that i would ask them my cloud rather the second question the first question would be their name the second question would be are you exercising are you moving because it is um it, it's critical obviously for physical and for psychological well-being. So, so you know, that's, um, that's something else that, that, that is important. We're becoming better also at understanding what kind of exercise. Um, so we know, for instance, that high-intensity interval training, um, which is getting our you know, pulse, heart rate up, and then letting it drop, and then up again, you know, three, four times, three, four sets, which can take, by the way, a total of 10 minutes, um, can go a long way in improving our physical and uh, and mental health um more research on acts of kindness being deliberate about kindness and you know you know people would say oh but but you know this should be it should be acts of kindness should be spontaneous and acts of kindness should be uh, um you know it, it should come when, when when you really feel like no it shouldn't if it does wonderful but acts of kindness can also be very deliberate and you can set your alarm clock for noon to remind you to be kind. That's perfectly fine, perfectly legit and even important because the more we do it mechanically, the more likely it's, it's, we, we will um, integrate it quite literally into, our, into who we are. So this notion of you, know, you fake it until you make it or you fake it until you become it, it's real. So there's a lot of research on, uh, on kindness. Um, I mentioned earlier, um, journaling. Um, no, um, the, um, the Oracle of Delphic, know thyself. That's so important and we, and we do it through me search. And the method that we know for, uh, for that is through journaling, through reflection. There's a lot of research by Jamie Pennebaker, by Laura King, and, and others. Cross-cultural research, by the way, so universal, um, on, the, uh, on the value of expressing rather than suppressing our thoughts and our emotions. Um, more, more, more research on, um, on increasing levels of well-being is um, uh, acceptance. You know, w so we know, for instance, that uh, happiness levels, you know, they... They peak relative to, again, this is all average. Of course, there are many individual differences. But they peak relative to where we were before they're in our 20s. And then they go down. And they go down and down. And then 
when we're in our late 40s, that's when they begin to go up again. And when we're 50s, they continue to go up. And, uh, and, and they continue also in our 60s and our 70s, potentially. Again, controlling for, um, um, for severe, chronic, dangerous, or painful illnesses. Um, and, and the question is why? Why is it, you know, we're not as beautiful as we were, we're not as strong as, as we were, and yet um, we become happier as we age for a very simple reason that every person who's, uh, who's matured knows, and that is acceptance. You know, accepting uh, our, our nature, accepting the ups and the downs, uh, giving ourselves the permission to be human rather than uh, seeking that uh, uh, superhuman um, uh, performance, abilities, looks. Um, so learning to accept ourselves when we're in our teens or 20s or 50s, learning to accept ourselves is an important part of, uh, of uh, fulfilling our happiness potential. The last thing that I, I'm going to ask, getting back to where we started, I think is a good place to end. And that is, do you know now or do you understand now why you were so miserable as an undergraduate student? And then this is a bigger question, but it's the, also one that you raised earlier, though uh, maybe we won't get to it. And that is, uh, why are we here? <laughs> okay, let, let me actually start with the second one because uh, it's easier to answer. I'm surprised. Why are we here? Why are we here? That's above my pay grade. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, as uh, as a, a psychologist and as a philosopher, but Robinson, if you have the answer, please, I'm I'm dying to know, but I'm not prepared to die uh, to know. Uh, but in terms of um, do I, do I know why I wasn't happy? Yes, I do, and um, one reason is because I was raised, and again, it's not my parents or it's not just my parents it's not my teachers or not just my teachers but the society i grew up in basically it's in the ether you know in the air is the fact that to be happy you need to be successful that um you know that's how most parents raise their children even if you ask them what's the most important thing for you uh, or for you for your children they would say i want them to be happy and yet, de facto, they are raising their children to be successful, to get into the top school, to, you know, to make a lot of money. Why? Because they actually believe that it's by being successful, by getting into this college or by getting this job or by making this amount of money or by, you know, living there and, and owning these things, then they'll be happy. You know, at the age of, uh, you know, 22, I was uh, a very, very successful student, you know, the, one of the top universities in the world. I was already working during the summers. I had an amazing summer job, making a lot of money for a 22-year-old. Um, I was uh, a top athlete, having played professional squash. You know, I checked the, box, the boxes, certainly relative to that age, and I was miserable because I believed that these things or if not these things, the next thing, the next things, you know, the next milestone is what will make me happy. And, and, and I realized it was only years later that I was um, experiencing what I've come to call the arrival fallacy. The arrival fallacy is the false belief that when you arrive somewhere, then you'll be happy. You know, that's, that's the myth of Sisyphus. You get to the top of the mountain and, you know, all that happens. You know, it's actually Sisyphus 2.0 because it's not just that you have to, you know, push that rock up the same mountain. The mountain gets steeper and steeper because if, you know, if I win a particular tournament as a professional athlete and um, think that that is what would make me happy, I get there, I'm not happy. It's not enough for me to win the same tournament again. I need, you know, a bigger prize the next time. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the incline, it becomes steeper and steeper, Sisyphus 2.0. Um, so that's the main thing, you know, the, the, um, the success trap or the, the arrival fallacy. 
The other thing is that I believed, I actually believed that it was possible to be happy all the time. So if you had asked me then, why are you starting to study philosophy and psychology? My answer would be so that I can finally be happy. And that meant happy all the time. That meant an unbroken chain of pleasurable emotions. And that, of course, is an enemy of happiness because we all do experience painful emotions at times. And paradoxically, it's when we accept and embrace these emotions that they are most likely to, uh, to leave us. They do not overstay their welcome. And when we fight them and reject them, that's when they intensify and grow strong. Well, Tal, I can, I can certainly empathize with the pain and struggle of falling into this arrival fallacy and engaging in this Sisyphean labor. But uh, I think this was a great end and this has been a great introduction to happiness studies and a launching point as well, I think, for future conversations on the show about the specific contributions of all the various fields to happiness studies. So neuroscience, philosophy, positive psychology, because all of these things could uh, fill up plenty and plenty of airspace. But thank you so much for doing this with me. It was really fun. Thank you, Robinson, for me too. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.